Welcome to the Blue Oasis Podcast. This is the podcast for finding peace and prosperity, learning the history of hobbies, as well as developing a little side hustle. If you want to find peace and prosperity in your life, this is your show. Get ready. You're listening to the Blue Oasis Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rothstein. All right, let's get to the show. All right, and uh, welcome back to the Blue Oasis podcast. I am your host, Adam Rothstein. Uh, with me today is Barbara Ann Mojica. 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 Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, and um, yeah, and and that's why I. I almost yeah and I forgot to yeah names sometimes I miss them apologies it's an easy name to mess up yeah okay um so uh you are an educator you're a teacher you were a school administrator and principal um so do you want to uh talk about yourself um tell everyone what you're all about okay well uh, as you mentioned, I have been in the education field for a long, long time. I was in the field since the age of 20, and I retired after 40 years uh, in, in education. Now, I am currently writing a series of children's books. I combine my two loves, which are a love of history and working with children. So I am writing a series of books that entertain children. At the same time, my hope is to develop a passion for and an appreciation for history, which extends to a love of their community and a love of the greater world as well. So that's where I am at this point. I do a lot of teaching uh, as well, even though I am retired from the classroom formally. I teach children in a variety of ways and I you have a YouTube channel. I do blog articles for parents recommending different types of books and educational materials. And I am still very actively involved in teaching and educating people of all ages. Nice, nice. Um, uh, if you want to, uh, just a little side note, if you do want um, me to uh, put that down in the show notes, I will, uh, the link to your YouTube channel. That's fine, yeah. Okay. Um, so you started being an actual teacher at 20? Yes, I finished college in three years. I was in such a hurry to learn as much as I could. Uh, I took courses during the summer and I finished early. So I did, I, I did start teaching at the age of 20. I went into a, a private school and I taught fifth grade for my first year. And I had 56 fifth graders in one classroom. And I think I was just as much afraid of them as they were of me initially, because uh, here I was walking in and I was only about 10 years older than my students, but uh, it worked out fine. I loved it. 
and uh, I spent 20 years teaching children uh, in, in that kind of environment, the general education environment. But then I realized that a lot of kids needed a lot more and their needs weren't being met in a regular classroom. So I started to study special ed. I went back to school again. I took a master's degree in, in special ed and I started to work with very young children who had a lot of special needs, children that were uh, afflicted by physical disabilities, children that were autistic, children that had uh, other outside addictions like being born crack cocaine babies and so on. So I worked with that really severely impaired population. And these were very young children. These were preschool age children. And eventually I became a principal of a special education school for those children. And I even became an administrator with a very large system in New York City. I became a administrator uh, and in, in that position, I was actually placing the children in the kind of uh, services that they needed. So um, I, I kind of did a 180 and went out of that general kind of population and, and went to working with children with extreme needs. But that all of that has given me the perspective that there's no one right education system uh, and that different children learn in different ways and they have very different needs. And I think that's one of the failings of education today. Uh, we are not providing for individual needs, but we try to kind of mold everybody into this common core type of education that uh, meets an arbitrary standard, but doesn't do enough to develop a child's full potential. And that's another thing I did want to cover um, is their potential, their development. Um, we, when I was in high school, which was actually, wow, it's actually 10 years ago because I feel old now. Um, the, it was, we, we didn't know much about they didn't teach us how to balance a checkbook. They didn't teach us anything about taxes or just, or loans or anything about real estate. I did take um, law class. So that was actually the one thing I got to do. Um, and accounting and economics uh, were either honors or AP, but just not the basics of that. But it, like you had to, to make time for it. And, and there's no time to take all those classes, certainly not in your senior year. So um, if there's any suggestions that you would make to this, what would you like to see um, in terms of uh, life skills being implemented in the class? Uh, definitely, I think what, what some people call critical life skills are allied again, with history, because history uh, helps us to understand critical thinking. When, when you study some, some problem or some person in history, you are breaking it apart into these kind of critical thinking skills. In order to be able to think critically, you need to 
learn how to observe things and how to analyze them, how to take things apart. And not only looking at the facts, but you have to look at the different approaches to thinking about things. There's not just one answer. And a lot of times in, in, in our modern 21st century world, we're looking for the one answer. You know, we wanna go to be, be able to go to the computer or go to our friends on social media and see what they think. And, oh, well, that must be the way we have to do things. We don't look at things from multiple perspectives. We don't look at the real facts. And once we have the facts, then we can make the connections. And we have to look at what else is going on around us. So there are other forces at work, like what are the other things happening in the world? What are the other things happening in the community that affect that? And then when we talk about conclusions or the reasons why, we have to look at multiple perspectives, multiple ways of thinking. And sometimes there isn't one answer. Sometimes there isn't any answer at all. And what you talked about critical thinking, critical thinking means being able to focus on a problem and do all of those things. And schools today, I think, are not teaching children how to do the process of thinking, but they're just teaching what to think. They're concerned with meeting their standards. They're concerned with what the administration wants. They have to pass the test. They have to come up to a certain level to make the school look good. And that isn't helping the individual child because the individual child is being forced into this mold of everybody has to pass, everybody has to achieve a certain percentage so that the school will, will be able to say, okay, we're, we're, meet, we're meeting our goals. And in that, pro, in that process, the child isn't really learning how to think. And critical life skills are, are things like knowing how to finish a task, like you were talking about being able to balance a checkbook. That's an important skill that we need to have in order to function in the world. Uh, children should be able to uh, be have the curiosity to go out and investigate things that they're interested in, not just what somebody tells them they should do, but an interest that they have outside. They should be bold enough to try new things. I don't think the schools are encouraging children to try new things, uh, to discover different passions, to discover different interests with, within uh, what is out there, to, uh, to be able to take things apart and know how things work, you know, to take the time to really go in and understand how things work. I, I really, we are in such a rush to, you know, get children prepared to meet these standards. They're losing all of those other skills along the way. And, and now I, I've got like some, that brings me to another point, uh, question rather, but 
I um, took computer science for a little bit um, in high school. And then I was like a DH. um, And that's just basically a student being an assistant in the classroom. I, I would have been much better off just learning from like going to the library and just teaching myself how to, how to program or, and even like, even if I had to report back to some teacher, um, I would have done well. Um, the, the one thing that uh, happened in high school was that the teacher was teaching two classes at once. And I'm like, how do you allow this? Like, like, how are we supposed to develop skills when you're teaching, when you're not focused on one specific material too? And, and I've experienced this with many different classes as, as well, um, when they just can bounce around too, um, whether it's like in math class or something, but, but that's another thing. Like, I, we would have definitely, um, you know, you know, could have found someone else to teach this as well. Um, even if we had to open up another room or just hire someone else too. So that's another thing. Um, so, um, in, so like for senior year of, or like when kids are trying to discover what they want, um, you would, do you agree with me that maybe they just need that one time to like just go to the library and just learn about their topic uh, that oh, they want definitely more a lot more time for independent thought uh, i mean i can give you another example of when you talk about trying to do two things at once uh, there's a lot of schools uh if there ch- if there are children with special needs what they try to do is to m- combine a children that have special needs in a class of children that don't so they have these kind of team teaching classes where supposedly the one teacher uh, that's qualified to work with special needs children works with that general kind of education teacher and then they're supposed to be able to meet those independent independent needs of the children within that classroom well that very often doesn't work uh, because these children need so much more and in an effort to save money and you know try to to say that we are being inclusive and including a child with every type of need within one classroom those children very often don't get their needs met and it's you know trying to trying to make a a perfect system and there is no perfect system i think that today in education the parents should be given greater leeway in in deciding what their child needs and there need to be more approaches to learning so independent learning is certainly one of them some parents find that homeschooling is best for their child and they want that child to be able to go out there and do a lot of independent learning and some some parents feel that a a a, a kind of collaborative learning a, a a bunch of teachers getting together and working to teach children together 
in a, in a group setting and then letting them explore their needs. That's another way of doing it. So there are a lot of approaches. And I think that the money today in education shouldn't all be put into a public school, but that the uh, parents should be allowed a lot more uh, uh, leeway and, you know, let the child, some child, some of the children might flourish in a charter school and those kind of schools are catered to the special interests of the children like a charter school that focuses on music or a charter school that focuses on art or computers you know whatever that individual interest of, of the child might be so there are a lot of ways to accomplish it but you know again we try to say well public education is the best route that isn't always the best route um i've got to be honest with you like i've definitely learned more on skillshare.com about computer science uh, and also i guess free code camp as well and khan academy and khan academy than i have from any computer science class, even, even in college, when I took Python as well, like you can, like, you can even get certified, like in, in months to go be some web designer as well. And, and go seek out um, a job as well, as well. So, um, so continuing on that, and this will be the last question um uh when so when do you think kids should just when do you think they should just start learning on their own um or we should start encouraging that uh with sites like skillshare.com well i think children should always be encouraged to learn on their own even from a very young age from from the time their toddlers and preschoolers when you see that a child has an interest in something, develop it. Whether it, with a very young child, you can take a young child to the library and let them go to the library and just let them wander around in, in the children's section and pick out the books that they're interested in. And then you can bring those books home. And even if you're, we're talking about a young child that can't read yet, you can see where their interest lies and you can develop their interests, even if it's with picture books, you can ask them questions. You know, it's always important for the parent to develop the natural curiosity of the child. So ask them, oh, who is that? Or what do you think they're doing? Or why do you think they're doing that? Or is there something you would like to learn about what they're doing? Do you think you would like to be able to do that when you get older? Now, all of those are ways to develop their natural curiosity. And as they get into school, when you see that the child has an interest in something, then try to develop that. You know, whether if a child has an interest in music, let them take music lessons. If a child has an interest in computers, go online and see what's available for them to learn online with computers, whatever that interest might be. Uh, parents are a child's first teacher and they are the ones who can develop that interest and foster the interest and, you know, let the child find his or her own path 
to where they want to go. And if that isn't through formal schooling, then it could be through any other natural route. You know, it can be uh, independently in many ways. It could be joining groups or clubs, groups of children that are interested in the same thing. It could be exploring on the internet. It could be going to the library. It could be taking field trips and visiting places where that uh, interest might lie. Uh, if a child's interested in archeological uh, sites, take them to an archeological site, take them on virtual trips online to explore different forms of archeology span or geology or whatever that interest might be. All right. Um, and, and this is definitely, and, and this is how people learn about their hobbies, what their interests are. And, and then from there, they could actually still start a business. And, and you're a hundred percent right that this is how we also develop the skills. Now, moving on, um, you were also a principal as well. Um, what were the differences uh, when you moved up from just being a normal teacher to a principal? Did you ever even have to step into a class to sub for someone? Oh, I was in the classroom all the time because I was the principal of this very small special education school. So the classes consisted of, uh, for the most part, 10 children. There was one teacher and two assistants, and then there were support staff like speech therapists and physical therapists and occupational therapists to meet these children's needs. And as the principal, uh, I was responsible for coordinating all of that. So in, a, in addition to the teaching role, I developed the, the curriculum and the, the kinds of subjects that were being taught but the state and the city also had a role you know they the the school had to meet the uh learning needs of the child academic needs but it also had to meet the needs of developing their speech and communication skills their physical skills and their social emotional skills too because some of these children had emotional problems as well. So I was responsible for developing the plans to do this and uh, to implement the teaching and to supervise the staff. So I was constantly in the classroom, you know, making sure that all of this was working. And in addition to that, I had to do the administrative paperwork with the city and state to prove to them how we were doing that. So it, I was constantly involved. So I really didn't leave teaching. It was just more of a step up to kind of coordinate to make sure that all of these things were happening at once. I think I, think I missed something. Um, what state or what city were you uh, teaching out of? Uh, at the time, I was in New York State and within New York City. It, the school was in one of the boroughs of New York City. Okay. All right. Just, just wanted to make sure of that. Um, now, book 
um, book writing and design. Um, when did you write your first book? I wrote my first book for children in 2013. And now I have 14 of them. So I have been writing ever since that time. I was, I always wrote a lot because being a history major in college and an English minor, uh, there was always lots of writing and lots of research to do. So I, I've been writing all my life, but more recently, I've been more focused in the writing on those two things, um, history and children being, you know, able to show children how history is so important in their lives because history is memory and our memories are so important to us, whether that be to ourselves, our own families, or our communities. And communities are really just people that are drawn together by their memories and their common experiences. And then of course the whole world, you know, uh, the whole world is a group of communities with, with common cultures and memories and experiences. So history helps us understand how we got to where we are. If we don't know the, about the past, we can't understand how we got to where we are today and how we're going to live today, better lives, and then hopefully develop a plan for making a future that's better for all of us. A hundred percent. Now, you've written uh, 14 uh, fictional books. Well, they're uh, not fiction. They're nonfiction. Oh. I just, I use a character. I use this character, Little Miss History, who's a fun cartoon-like character, uh, who is kind of based on a younger version of me. And she narrates, she tells the stories uh, in my books, but the books are nonfiction. They are based on historical research and facts. Oh, oh, okay. And you've written 14 of them. And that's, yeah, so you're averaging two books a year, which, um, so they're, so I take it they're short. Um, well, they're, they're books written for children and they focus on children in the kindergarten through grade six area. So they are also illustrated. They're picture books. So they're highly visual and they include photographs of the people and places that I visit. They also include artwork. Uh, which are portraits. So when the people are no longer living, they're in my book, they are illustrated. They are portraits uh, of what these people look like. Uh, and uh, all of that is in, you know, put together in kind of like a multimedia kind of book. So it appeals to children who learn in different ways. You know, some children are more visual, some children are, are not. So the book uh, uh, appeals to younger children as well as older children and even adults, because I make sure that in every one of my books, I, uh, I uncover facts and, and events and people that they probably never heard of. So even the adults who are reading the books to the children are learning new things themselves as well. That's, that's great. Um, 
the design process of each of the books. Um, uh, what goes into the design and uh, what type of software do you use to design each book cover? Well, each of the books is illustrated by uh, my illustrator, who also happens to be my husband. He's been drawing since the age of five. And he uh, studied art and he's done children's books. He's done comic books. He's done science fiction. He's done a whole range of things. But he illustrates my book. So we go to the site. We take photographs. In most cases, almost all of my books have actual photography from the site with a, a few exceptions. For instance, my North Pole book. I haven't physically been to the North Pole. But uh, in most of my books, I have physically been to the sites. So there's photography. We go to the site, we visit. Uh, I do a research of the, of the book. I write my information down. Uh, after I edit it and revise it probably 10 to 12 times, because in order to get the book suitable for children, you have to make it fairly short. So I have to cut a lot of information and edit it. It takes me a long time to get it to the point where I'm giving the maximum amount of information. And at the same time, in a way that it can be understood very quickly. So there's a, an editing process. And then once I'm all finished, uh, and we have all the photography. I have all the uh, information that's going to go into the book. It goes to illustration. So my husband creates thumbnail sketches for each page as to how to portray what's going on in those pages. And then he develops uh, a fuller page view. So he goes from the thumbnails and then he creates portraits and the illustrations of my character who's narrating for each page and puts those together. And then he does most of the drawing himself. So most of the drawing is done by hand, actually, with the, assist, uh, with the assistance of a computer. He uses programs like InDesign and Photoshop uh, to assist with that. But a lot of the drawing is hand drawn and hand colored either with markers or with watercolors. So that the final process is taking all of those finished illustrations and coloring them. And then the book is designed by using a, um, that InDesign program. And the last step is inputting it to a template that comes from the printer. And my books go through uh, Ingram Spark, but uh, we, we take the templates and we input all of the text and the design. And from there, it goes to the printer. And the only thing that we don't do ourselves is physically print the books. So in regards to the printing, aspect of this. Do you use Amazon, Barnes & Noble uh, to distribute these books? Well, Ingram Spark actually distributes them. They're the distributor, but they distribute them worldwide. So my books go to Amazon online. 
they go to Barnes and Noble online, they go to bookshop.org, they go to IndieBound. And then some of my books, in some cases, they're actually available at historical sites, like my uh, book about FDR is available at the FDR uh, Presidential Museum and Library Bookstore. And my Statue of Liberty book is available at the Statue of Liberty Monument Bookstore. So in some cases, the books are uh, physically available at the site. So, as well as online. Yeah, so you've had um, your books actually on store shelves. I, I've i sold um, probably, I think, a total of 20 now, but that was a, a few different titles as well. And some of those, well, yeah, actually, no, it, it was over 20, and then some of those were ebooks. But, um, but uh, is there a specific process to get it onto store shelves or do you or is that something uh publishers or agents take care of for you on the well it depends on who your publisher is if you are with a large publishing house and you have a literary agent and you're with one of the big publishing houses like penguin or random house or uh, a big distributor like Scholastic, they do a lot of distributing for school books. I can't get anywhere near Scholastic because they just take, quote, mainstream publishers from big publishing houses. But um, it so it depends on that. If you are with a small publishing company or publishing yourself, then you have to find a distributor like Ingram Spark or Baker and Taylor, one of these big distributors to get your books out into the markets. But it's very difficult to get them on store shelves. Some stores take books on what they call consignment, where you agree they agree to, to buy a few books from you and and they give you a percentage. If the books sell, then they might agree to renew your book and take it again. Uh, so there are a lot of ways of getting books uh, on, on bookstore shelves. But today, the vast majority of book sales are online anyway. So uh, mo more people tend to buy books online unless they go to an event, like if they go to um, a book fair, uh, then you know, a lot of authors sell their books at local book fairs. Uh, and uh, that's another way of getting the book out, you know, in, into the general public if you're not with a big publisher. There is something I did want to follow up question on, which was, how do you budget your time when you write a new book? Do you uh, have have uh, plans already laid out or do you um, just do a first draft and then write up the plans or something? Well, I do the research generally first. I, there's a topic or a person that I'm interested in that I think would be of interest to a large number of people. So I start doing research on that topic and then I plan a trip to the site and 
I will have most of my research and writing done. I don't write an outline. Some authors like to write an outline and then fill the outline in. I don't do that. I do research and then I put it together into a what I think is a fairly finished summary of what the book will look like. And then I go back in and I edit it and refine it and refine it and refine it. Sometimes going to the site and visiting helps me decide what I want to focus on so that when I come back, that plays a part in the editing. But I usually go to, you know, do the research first and then work from there. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, and um, now when you became a historian, you were also a teacher um, and that just integrated with part with your teaching. Well, yes, to a certain extent, but history is not a big part of the curriculum in elementary schools today. Uh, when I went to school, history was a separate subject. You learned history, uh, you learned geography, you learned civics. You had a course in government and learning about what government is and, and how government works. That's largely disappeared today. Uh, until you get to high school, there really isn't much teaching of history at all, which I think is, you know, a shame. Because again, all of these basic skills about critical thinking, all, a lot of that is being lost. And that's why I think it's so important for children to become involved with critical thinking that the parents have to, you know, teach the children to ask, who is that? what's going on, why are they doing it? And they have to kind of pick up the slack with that. And they have to teach children about their communities, take them out into the community, make them ask questions, show them how there are all kinds of memories in their community, just like there were all kinds of memories within their family. Show them how they're a part of that community? How can they help their community? Teach them respect and compassion and empathy to, to sympathize with other people, whether those people are like them or unlike them. 100, 100%. Um, yeah, so, wow, 40 minutes in, 40 minutes in, that was, uh, that went by a lot quicker than I, I had initially thought. Um, anything you'd like to ask me? Uh, well, I'd like you, uh, I think your journey is great. I think it's, it's great to talk about hobbies and, 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 uh, and being an entrepreneur and, and how to learn and, and think on your own. I think hobbies are a great way of uh, an individual finding a career, finding a path to where they want to go. Uh, because if you want, if you take the time to, in your leisure or the time that, that you have free when you don't have to work to support yourself and you really enjoy something, that's a good way to find a career that's going to work for you, that's going 
to make you feel rewarded. It's not just a job that you have to go to to support yourself. It's something that you really have a passion. I think passion is so important. I have a real passion for history and for people and for teaching people how to learn and to grow and develop their curiosity. So you need to learn something new every day from the day you're born. You, I say the day you're born, you become a character in history, but you have to have that curiosity and passion and determination to always move to someplace better. And I think the world will be a better place if we all have that. A hundred percent. I have a mentor by the name of Jason Stapleton. We have this nomad network and, and I've been like helping to promote this like crazy. It's where all these entrepreneurs meet and everything and people of all different types of backgrounds, whether it's coffee, books. Um, one person was doing shipping containers and, and, and it's just an amazing place to go to. Um, finding that side hustle as well, in addition to nine to five is like key. And it, and it, and this gives me, uh, this is uh, projected to about break even with the expenses, but I don't, I don't mind that. I mean, like, because, mm-hmm. because I'm still producing, I'm still making audiobooks and, and writing and, and teaching people the technicalities of software too. It, I mean, like these discoveries um, do shape who we are every day. And, and, uh, and I'm just grateful that we live in the information age as well to discover these new things. I don't know if I would have even, you know, done this in my free time and learned about this had I not um, had the internet not been around uh, growing up, I mean, like, I, I probably would have been a totally different person as well, but, but, um, here I am. Yeah. Well, I grew up without it as a young, young child. I didn't have the internet and I, so I'm kind of a a witness to both systems and uh, it certainly is a lot easier because uh, you know when when I was first going to school I had no computer I had to go to the library to get all of my information I had to take the books out of the library I had to read them I had to take notes then I had to take those notes and I had to put them together I had to write something And after I wrote something, I had to go to a typewriter and I had to type it all out. Uh, And it took a lot, lot longer. And, you know, it was certainly a lot more labor intensive. And you certainly could not process as much information as you can do in a couple of seconds today. Uh, You have a question, you just type it in on the internet and you can get an answer and as i said there's a there's an advantage to that certainly we are we are able to get so many answers but some people are quick to take the first answer that they get and they don't take the time 
to look at all the possibilities. So, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. We get, we have so much more information, but on the other hand, we're overloaded and we're torn in so many different directions uh, as to, you know, what to do with all of this information. There's only so many hours in the day. And so that's why it's so important to find our interest and our passion, because we have to choose. Now we have to make decision as to where we're going to focus. Again, critical thinking, where we're going to focus our abilities and, 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 and then we can develop the passion in that area. 100 percent um yeah i guess uh yeah there there are some advantages to actually writing and then typing it all out i mean memory retention that that'll definitely retain your memory but um today um uh most like even even when i was back in college not too long ago um there you know there were people that had their Macs out and their PCs out and they were typing. And I was the only, like, I was like one of the few people with an actual journal still writing. And it's like, like, because in some of the classrooms, there's no room to put that there. Um, so you were just writing this down, trying to learn and, and, uh, then other people were just typing, but, um, yeah, it wanted... does force you to focus a lot harder and a lot better uh, on, on listening than, you know, if you, well, the computer's going to capture all of this, you know, I'll just, I'll just record it or, you know, I'll just let the computer handle it and I'll look at it later. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone, if any, everyone just needs to be more active. Uh, in their education and uh, just not learn passively. Yes, definitely. definitely. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, anything else before I close out? No, I think uh, if, as you mentioned, if anyone's interested in my teaching videos, I have videos for children, videos for um, teachers and parents to use as lessons if they want to use little mini lessons. Uh, and I have tips for authors and just tips for families. Uh, that's all on my YouTube channel and my blog. So if people go to my website, littlemisshistory.com, from my website, you can get anywhere. You can get to my YouTube channel, my blog with my articles. I have a Pinterest board. My books are on there. They can look at the books. They can look at what people say about them and where to buy them. It's all on my website, littlemisshistory.com. All right. Um, and the links for those will be in the show notes. And if you're watching slash listening on YouTube, uh, the links for that will also be in the description as well. Or it'll be either in the description or show notes, depending on what platform you're listening to this on. All right. Um, with that being said, um, this has been the Blue Oasis podcast. Uh, stay safe. Stay great. I will talk to you all in the next episode.